Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, available every week on Acast, or as it's been renamed by algorithms, Bcast. I'm Dorian Litsky and I'm joined by a crack team of graduates from the University of Life. Nina Schick is the author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse, What You Urgently Need to Know. Hi Nina, how are you? Hi Dorian. What is it that we urgently need to know on the disinformation front this week? Well, it's it's actually rather heartening news. There was um, a viral misinformation film about COVID that got shared by millions in May. It was called Plandemic. And it basically spun a web of conspiracy about how COVID was all, you know, manufactured by Bill Gates um, and, you know, how the WHO was in cahoots. Um, it became very popular amongst the QAnon community. And the second part of Plandemic, which has just been released a day or two ago, the social media companies have actually taken action and on Facebook prevented people from sharing the link. You know, Twitter has um, flagged it as misleading information and LinkedIn has banned it outright. So it's a very interesting lesson into how the spread of viral disinformation can actually be controlled. Um, and the social media companies have a big part to play. So that's been encouraging. I was doing something on Sky News and I accidentally said plandemic instead of pandemic, which may have, um, may have given people the wrong impression. <laughs> it's very easily done. You become a slip of the tongue and, and soon you're down a QAnon rabbit hole. <laughs> also with us is Ben Stewart of Led by Donkeys. Hello, Ben. Hey, how you doing? Good. So the big uh, the big news was the um, A-level uh, Farago. Um, after the biggest scandal since Dominic Cummings went to Barnard Castle, England's followed Scotland and Wales in U-turning and using teacher assessments as final results, which it should have done in the first place. Um, how did the government get this so wrong? Is there, a, is there, a, is there one particular uh, decision here that, that made it all unravel? I think there is, actually. I mean, put simply, they built an algorithm that delivered broadly the same results in the same schools in the same regions as in recent years. But in the process, they ignored the efforts, the sacrifices, the successes and the failures of individual 18-year-olds. So I think, I think Stephen Bush actually explained, the New Statesman political editor explained it best in the Times. He, you know, he was saying it was as if they were trying to apportion medals for the cancelled 2020 Tokyo Olympics. And the way they did it was to look at the last three Olympics in Beijing, London, and Rio. So they give the US the most medals for 2020, China the second most, Russia the third or whatever. Australia gets lots of swimming medals, Britain cycling medals. But here's the thing. If a Brit had fallen off a bike in 2008, then the algorithm would say a Brit has to fall off their bike in 2020. So a cyclist who's trained their socks off for Tokyo and is the fastest in the world would be told they'd come last in 2020 because the algorithm is looking at something that happened 12 years ago. Now, they applied that rationale to A-level results. And if that sounds bonkers, it, it's because it is cert certifiably and catastrophically bonkers. So, you know, talented A-level students in, in 2020 were given low grades because someone from last year's class at the same school like, smoked weed in their bedroom and listened to Sisters of Mercy and didn't do any revision. And sounds kind of like my forced. kind of uh, A-level student. I don't know how you did in your own levels. You know, the, the algorithm decided also that schools with small class sizes didn't give enough historical data to make it work. So for them, the teacher grades would stand. And of course, schools with small class sizes are otherwise known as fee-paying schools, private schools. So disadvantaged kids were penalized 
and the better off were not. And that meant that exceptional kids in unexceptional schools were treated as unexceptional, but unexceptional kids in exceptional schools were still treated as exceptional. And, you know, we've all met unexceptional people from exceptional schools, and this algorithm, you know, it loved them. I think the, uh, we are governed by uh, unexceptional people from exceptional schools. We are indeed, yeah. And, and you know, the government were prioritising not seeing grade inflation, and they were prioritising the overall medal table, as it were, taking that analogy. And there's a lot of cynicism about the political consequences of, of any uh, kind of government fuck-up. Um, but do you think that this, uh, I suppose, like the coming scandal, offends a basic sense of fair play in a way that crosses the usual political divides and, and sort of will, will therefore um, cause some significant damage? I think it's potentially damaging, though, of course, the caveat, as ever, is that we're four years from an election. So, you know, so a sense of proportion is in order. But, you know, people really care about this stuff, you know, with the exception of maybe a a local hospital closing down. It's hard to think of a story that's less kind of Westminster bubble. So, you know, not everyone will know an A-level student who was affected. But, but millions of people will, and millions of more people will, will, will know parents who, who have had a very difficult week as well. And, you know, moreover, you have, you have several hundred thousand 18-year-olds whose first experience of the government policy directly affecting their lives is to be screwed over and categorised as a unit rather than an individual. Now, those people are, are of course, voters now. And I don't think many of them will, will forget this, and, and neither will their parents and it, yeah, it cuts it cuts against the story that, that Cummings is trying to tell about leveling up you know their algorithm was a very powerful machine holding back superstar kids from bad schools and giving another leg up frankly to thick posh kids at expensive schools and you saw the reaction on the front of the Daily Mail for example where it had um, uh, Johnson and Williamson as Laurel and Hardy, you know, and the implication is that these people are incompetent. So if the word sleaze was attached to the major government, there is a merging dynamic now that we see where the word ineptitude or incompetence is being attached to the Johnson government. Yeah, we're four years away from an election, but something is crystallizing out there. And, um, and I think the government will be very worried about it. Our guest this week is political journalist and broadcaster Marie Leconte, the author of Haven't You Heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works. Hi, Marie. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so I saw a very nice paperback uh, on your Twitter feed. Is it is it out now? Uh, no, it's coming out in September, so very soon, very soon. I mean, like I think every other book in Britain, as far as I can tell, because <laughs> okay. every release date has been pushed back, obviously, because of the pandemic. So it's just me and about sort of like 2,000 authors uh, <laughs> just waiting for our books to come out. So, so you'll be pushed out of the chart by celebrity memoirs. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, annoyingly, actually, we'd already picked that date anyway. So you're like, mine personally didn't have anything to do with the pandemic. So it kind of feels like, you know, I just had my special date and everything was nice. And then literally everyone else turned up and I'm like, oh, OK, sure. But by all means, by all means, come around and, and enjoy that, you know, early September book release date. I saw a piece in The Economist uh, this morning about how Gossip had suffered during the lockdown because obviously people were not uh, meeting up as much and uh, you weren't getting these uh, kind of exciting clandestine meetings and affairs and so on. Is this, uh, is this, a, has this been a bad time for gossip? 
Oh, absolutely. Because I think, you know, as you've said, obviously, people have not really been meeting up. And it's not quite the same notion sort of have a Zoom call or have a phone call uh, with someone. You know, you don't have that kind of face to face thing of, you know, chatting about whatever it was that you were meant to chat about and then going and by the way, you know, did you hear this? Or, you know, this thing happened. But also, you know, to be blunt, there's just nothing to gossip about. Um, and, and I think, you know, that that's an issue for a number of reasons. But, um, but you know, one of which being that actually, Westminster kind of does rely on you know when I say gossip I kind of mean it in in the widest possible sense which is kind of informal conversations face to face to kind of see what's going on even actually a government you'll see um, often will need to talk to be that you know their own backbenches what's going on with the opposing uh, the opposing party what's going on you know how the press are feeling is there any rumbles about an issue that's sort of like popping up um, and that's kind of you know how you run an effective government by kind of being aware of everything that's going on and that's not happening and also to be completely honest it's just not really fun and I know because I had um, a Conservative MP on the phone the other day and I think we sort of try to do what we'd normally do you know to talk about the issues of the day and sort of everything but it felt quite stilted and I think even yeah the MPs are going um a bit a bit mad as well and there's obviously been uh pressure on Gavin Williamson to resign uh he hasn't uh after Cummings and Jenrick is this a government that resists resignations on principle and therefore that even though there will be the ritual calls for a resignation they're, they're not going to happen what would it take so I am actually, I think, going to disagree with the premise of the question, excitingly, um, in that I don't really think any government ever really did resignations on principle. So I think that we'd got used, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, we'd got used to governments uh, who would get rid of their ministers and secretaries of state uh, quite quickly. But that was not, you know, I think for any of the right reasons. It was mostly because, A, there were governments who cared very, very much about press coverage and basically did not want to have too many days in a row of bad headlines and so would just get rid of someone that they got inconvenient. But also, you know, that, that there's that kind of tried and tested Westminster tradition of if you're a minister and you've done something bad, you just have to resign very, very quickly so the story doesn't run and run. So then you can come back onto the front bench about a year later once everyone has forgotten. But that being said, I I don't really know. I think that Gavin Williamson was basically appointed because he was very useful to the Boris campaign last summer um, because he knows the Parliamentary Conservative Party better than anyone else. Um, And that's kind of, you know, how he got a job with May as well. Um, but but equally, I'm you know I'm not sure how useful that's going to be to the Boris administration going forward. So, although that being said, obviously you know, and I can't remember who uh, made the point. I'm shamelessly nicking a clever point from Twitter. Um, but 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 you know, Gavin Williamson is about to be the Secretary of State, uh, who parents up and down the country will have to trust uh, regarding sending their kids back to school in a safe way. Mm. Um, and actually, you know, is he really going to be the best person to do that? So in that sense, I could maybe see number ten saying, actually, you know. We, we do need someone parents will be able to trust with literally, you know, the, the lives of their kids um, and their own lives, etc. So, you know, w- would that mean actually getting rid of him? Maybe. But again, I'm, I'm still not convinced um, it's going to happen because, as you mentioned, you know, coming stage, generic stage. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, not well, sure he's going to go. Maybe Williamson can get people back to school the big whip on his desk. <laughs> In this week's edition, we'll be looking at the protests in Belarus and asking if the country could finally experience its 1989 moment and talking about Diamond Joe Biden's pick of Kamala Harris as his running mate on the Democratic ticket. Before we get into that, a quick reminder, our rescheduled live show on 22nd of September has unfortunately had to be re-rescheduled for a reason I'm sure you can guess. While we wait for a new date, we're opening our next live Zoom event to all ticket holders as well as Patreon backers. 
It's happening on Thursday, 24th of September at 8pm. So watch your inbox for how to register and join us for an evening of quality political conversation, fun with Zoom backgrounds, if I can work out how to do them, and questions from the audience. And if you're not a Patreon backer yet and you'd like to join in, you can sign up for as little as £2 a month. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Firstly, Europe could be witnessing its first revolution since the Maidan protests in Ukraine in 2013, with unprecedented resistance to President Alexander Lukashenko following discredited elections in Belarus earlier this month. The government crackdown has been brutal with evidence of widespread torture, but events seem to be gathering momentum towards real change. Over the weekend, Minsk saw the largest demonstration in its history. Lukashenko was booed by factory workers, who used to be his political base, and he made the bold move of insisting there would be no new elections until you kill me which is a possibility you probably don't want to put on the table. Lukashenko's challenger Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, currently in Lithuania, has offered to serve as a temporary national leader until new elections can be held within six months. Earlier this week, I spoke to Olya Verbilovich, a sociologist and researcher who is currently in Belarus, and I asked her what's been happening on the ground. Hi, Olya. How, how has the um, last week or so been for you since the uh, disputed election? Hi, Dorian. So um, I would say that in these 10 days of protests, all these days, Belarusians experience both, both despair and encouragement because of the, the hottest days were August 9 and 10, the brutal crackdown of the protests, uh, total internet lockdown, and you know that the special police force attacked the actually the protesters, uh, and there were no aggressive attacks from the protesters' side. No buildings destroyed. They they were just peaceful peaceful meetings and peaceful claims. But um, the protesters were attacked by rubber bullets, by flashbang grenades, and then uh, the August fourteen followed uh, the deadline for the election results mm. and we saw this 80% for Lukashenko and of course it was um, the feeling of fault uh, for all the Belarusians because they 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 believe that Svetlana Tikhanovskaya uh, won the elections and simultaneously, this uh, day, August 14th, was the day when thousands of protesters that had been arrested and humiliated were set free. And Belarusians saw and heard their stories with uh, evidences of cruel physical and mental violence and abuse. And the core decisions were taken right in the custodies without any justifications. Mm. Uh, so that no doubt this is a crime against the whole nation. And I mean, I've been I've been sort of following the the, the protests, um, and there's, I suppose there's certain kinds of people you'd you'd imagine to sort of to be the in the sort of first wave of of um, of the protests. Then there were things that sort of surprised me, sort of strikes, even some employees of state television. Yeah. Since the, the, those first couple of days, has it has it sort of kept expanding? Have more and more people from maybe different parts of, of of sort of Belarusian society joined in the protests? Yeah, we would say that very um, people from all over. The, the country yeah joined the protests and they are from different social groups different ages uh, different 
jobs and the, the medicians, uh, the lawyers, the um, workers in the major plants. Um, and uh, we already have National Strike Committee also. Uh, and and these are the inspiring events, of, of course. And these are the events of encouragement. People are united in this protest. And, and why this time? Why is this time so much bigger, you know, and, and threatening Lukashenko's power in a way like never before? Yeah, it is... It is even surprising for Belarusians uh, because actually this struggle was long ago and uh, for now, and maybe uh, this is the Svetlana Tikhanovskaya's role and also the role of the team of Maria Kolesnikova and uh, uh, Veronika Tsipkala, the wife of the former candidate. So these uh, women actually united uh, the nation uh, and uh, inspired people from different backgrounds to join the protests. And every protester has his own story why it is connected with job, education, um, little opportunities to travel abroad, and so on and so forth. And it's moved quite fast, but Lukashenko still, uh, you know, hasn't offered to step down yet. What what needs to happen next? The main uh, aim now is uh, free elections, actually, because there are a lot of evidence of uh, falsifications of the results. Uh, there are no independent exit polls and actually independent sociological agencies. So that we need these uh, procedure, procedural elections to be transparent. Uh, and there has been a lot of talk about how... Uh... Russia would would like Lukashenko to stay in power and that it might intervene. How worried are you that Russia will do something major? And does Russia have the power, like if it, if it decides to throw its full weight behind supporting him, would, would that be enough? It seems like, yes, Russia has this power and uh, it depends on the decisions Putin will take. Uh, there are a lot of um, discussion around this issue. Uh, what will be what will be next from the Russia side, uh, especially because we know the history and the yes, the story of Maidan, and um, a lot of experts try to compare Maidan and Belarusian protests. And I would say that it is not uh, similar. Right. Yeah. And, it seems like now Russia has a lot of other issues inside his, the country, pandemic and economic uh, situation, and a lot of protests inside Russia, actually, and a lot of other uh, issues that Russian authorities have to uh, uh, deal with. Uh, and we hope that, actually, we will be able to, to decide uh, and we will be able to resolve our problems inside the country without any assistance from Russia's side. I mean, aggressive assistance, yes. Well, I suppose there's also some people worry about having, for example, too much assistance on the other side from from the EU, from other countries, um, that it would seem as if they were uh, interfering in, in Belarus. And... 
I think that actually the European countries is, are doing much already. Uh, uh, we appreciated the claim uh, of the of some European countries that uh, they want to refuse and they do not recognize election results. Uh, I think that uh, uh, this line should should be intensive and stable. And finally, obviously, you know, it's it's very hard to make predictions. Uh events do change from day to day um as we're speaking now how how optimistic are you um that you know that that lukashenko will step down that there will be free elections does it does it feel very close i would say yes uh we see that a lot of people are not agree with these elections and they he can't actually have this 80 percent of support so that I believe that this is a way to uh, big changes, and I strongly believe that I, I mean, strongly believe that these changes will come. And uh, I think that we have enough uh, capability to to uh, uh, to face these challenges inside Belarus. Well, wish you the best of luck. Um, be following um, events in Belarus carefully. Thank you so much for joining us uh, and helping to explain what's going on, Olya. Thank you so much, Darian. Thank you. So, Nina, Belarus, as people are saying, could be experiencing its own 1989 moment of liberation 30 years late. Why has history moved so slowly there? What's, what's kept Lukashenko in power for so long? Well, I think Belarus is really... A remnant of the Soviet era, some kind of time warp. And it has a lot to do um, with the leadership. Uh, Lukashenko has been in power now for 26 years. Um, you know, from the moment the office was created in 1994, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, he has been the president. So he was obviously always heavily invested in, in the Soviet era, And he was actually one of the members of the Belarusian Supreme Court who voted against the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. Um, He's been rejecting uh, any kind of Western economic shock therapy after the Soviet Union collapsed. And actually, it's been obvious for years now that Belarus is not a country that has free and fair elections. It does not have a free press. Um, And there are human rights abuses, something which... Belarus has been sanctioned by by the EU and the West now since 2006. So the country has basically been run by a Soviet-era tin pot dictator. And now we come to this critical moment where the people, quote-unquote, are, are rising up for democracy and the impotence of, of the West really starts to show. So just as what happened when the Maidan protests happened in Ukraine starting in 2013, you know, this was presented in the kind of the Western world as the people rising up for democracy. And you even had a lot of very vocal EU leaders going to Maidan, joining the protests. Um, There was a celebratory mood, but we all know what happened afterwards. I mean, Russia basically annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine. And it barely faced any sanction. I mean, it faced economic sanctions, but nothing else. So I think the scary thing is what happens next? Because obviously, Lukashenko has asked Putin for his support. And if 
historical indicators, recent historical indicators are anything to go by, this situation could still dramatically escalate. Well, what do you think Russia would do? Because they haven't made a significant move yet. They seem to be seeing if Lukashenko can sort of handle it on its own. Well, I mean, in Ukraine, it literally was uh, two strands of actual physical warfare, you know, boots on the ground. Um, and eventually, they actually invaded eastern Ukraine. Of course, they claimed that this this was nothing to do with the Russian army and that these were pro-Russian Ukrainian separatists. And we saw what happened subsequently with the shooting down of MH17. But aside from that, the actual physical elements of warfare, they also conducted a very potent information warfare where they started infiltrating um, Ukrainian information channels, not only on social media, but also state media. So I think we might see something similar in Belarus where you see modern information warfare combined with, if necessary, actual force on the ground. Of course, they won't be wearing the insignia of the Russian army, right? It will just be presented as the pro-Russian separatists again, if it comes to that. Marie, Lukashenko has already claimed the protests are being coordinated by Britain alongside Poland and the Czech Republic, which is very flattering to us. Uh, I don't think we have the competence, uh, but not actually true. Um, So the EU is moving towards certain measures like travel bans and asset seizures. But is there a danger of, uh, I mean, one, antagonising Russia and two, um, allowing it to be framed as uh, as sort of foreign meddling? You can't, you know, I I think Russia will always be quite good at framing things the way it wants to frame things. And so I think they're acting only depending on what we think Russia is going to say in response is maybe not always the most useful thing to do. Um, But I do think kind of looking more domestically as well, I'll be quite interested to see what Britain actually does, because I think that, I mean, not, not to bring everything back to domestic politics, but... But, but, you know, Brexit is happening and, and we, we've kind of been on the verge of having this discussion about the role of Britain, of post-Brexit Britain in the world. You know, once it leaves the EU, what does it want to do? And I think especially from the Conservatives. Um, so actually, you know, like this is, I think, probably the first example we really have. You know, what, what will Britain do if Britain really wants to be that country and kind of like occupy that space um, outside of the EU? Is it really going to do anything? And, you know, and we've not heard, I think, a tremendous amount from Dominic Raab so far. Um, so, yes, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, will Britain actually rise up to the occasion and try and uh, do more than, let's say, would have done um, had it just been a member of the EU? Ben, the revolutions of 89 were supported across the Western world. You know, it was all part of sort of victory in the Cold War. Now, for good or ill, there is no talk of a new world order or anything similar. Will democracy protesters in Belarus and elsewhere, you know, currently they just have to do the job without American help? And... How do you sort of how do you feel about that? Because there are certainly times when uh, American help in inverted commas in uh, in foreign countries did not did not end well. Well, yeah, I mean, let's remember, post-war America has a patchy record on on supporting democratic movements. But I mean, by God, the America of the past could at least look dictators in the eye and give a reasonable account of its its commitment to democracy at home, even if it was tainted with hypocrisy, be it support for the Contras or Pinochet or, or, or whatever. But you know, take press freedom. Now, how does America lecture Putin about killing journalists when, you know, last year CNN was attacked by a pipe bomb and 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 seemingly in support of the Trump campaign and Trump really didn't condemn it? And how could, how can America look dictators in the eye and tell them not to fix elections when you look at what's happening, you know, with the post office situation in America and God, manifold other things. So, um, look, I mean, the, the, the US-led 
post-war liberal order isn't dead yet, but Trump has severely weakened it. And so have the forces that gave us Trump. You know, they have weakened democracy. And you get the impression worldwide that the kind of general aspiration to live in liberal democratic systems that characterized 1989 has, has diminished somewhat. And maybe that's because of rampant inequality, or maybe it's, you know, the algorithms in our information systems. I, I defer to Nina on that. She's literally just written a book about it. But, you know, where, where do people look to now? I, I wouldn't presume to speak for a 20-year-old risking their life on, on the streets of Minsk, but one doubts that they'd be looking to Trump's America. I mean, people fleeing war-torn Syria certainly look to Merkel's Germany. And although that is an imperfect country, it seems to me that Germany is a robust democratic state that values freedom and tolerance in a way that Trump's America or Bolsonaro's Brazil just doesn't. But you know, if, if Biden wins, that might change. Well, in the meantime, if you'd like to support protesters in Belarus, uh, Olya suggests making a donation at the Facebook pages Support for Belarus and Belarus Solidarity Foundation. Next, Joe Biden finally chose his running mate last week. California Senator and former Attorney General Kamala Harris is not just the first black woman on a major party ticket, but also the first candidate, male or female, of Indian and Jamaican descent. She's in fact nearly the fourth woman ever after Geraldine Ferrero, Sarah Palin, remember her, and Hillary Clinton. Marie, like Keir Starmer Harris uh, as a former Attorney General, whose record is therefore open to criticism, the people she prosecuted, the people she didn't, you're making a huge number of contentious decisions in that job. How do lawyers uh, in politics get on top of those attacks and sort of frame their, their own inevitably uh, flawed record? Hmm. Um, I, that's a really good question because I think I'm, I'm in entirely two minds about it. So I think my personal um, opinion is that they should find a way to get on top of it because these are issues that personally matter to me uh, very much. And, you know, m- more, I would say, in the case of Kamala Harris than uh, Keir Starmer looking at the records. But the cynical in me would say that actually they didn't really need to get on top of it because that is something normal voters enjoy you know law and order is normally something that will gain you voters and you know like issues looking at you know either be that sort of like drugs I think uh, Kamala uh, took some uh, questionable decisions in my opinion uh, on the topics of you know sex work um, and trans people in prisons um, but actually these issues do not really matter to the absolute sort of like vast majority of voters and especially I think if you are a left-wing liberal politician trying to gain votes back from the centre and the right Well, the progressive criticisms of her record, including the ones you mentioned, came up during the primaries. At this stage in the game, do you think they are still worth making loudly? Or is it time uh, temporarily to sort of suck it up and get behind Biden-Harris as the way to stop Trump? I mean, what do you think the kind of the the, the wounded Bernie Sanders voter should be doing in, in August 2020 as opposed to April? As a yeah, as a French person, I have to say I'm getting such deja vu from this, you know, from our last presidential election between Macron, who was centrist and you know had his issues, but on the other hand, literal fascist Marine Le Pen. Um, so, so this is fun, you know. I get I get to replay all this again now. Um, and I'm not. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I don't think I had a set position at the time. I don't think I have a set position now. But because it's tough, because I think that you know, it's not. I don't think it's helpful in any way. And I don't think it's healthy in a democracy to just say, well, you know there's a least bad candidate and a very bad one. So let's just never critique anything the least bad person says, lest, you know, um, we convince people not to vote for them. 
you know, equally, I don't think there's that much of a risk of people staying home, if that makes sense, you know, in the way that I think quite mm. a lot of people clearly did with Clinton, and that was clearly an issue with Hillary. Um, and many people thinking, you know, she was not the ideal candidate, therefore did not vote for her. Not, long story short, we got Donald Trump. Well, the Republicans, uh, for their part, seem unsure whether they should caricature Harris as a, as a dangerous Marxist radical, or, you know, take on the progressive critique as, as Kamala as a cop. Weirdly, there are Kamala as a cop t-shirts being, uh, you know, printed by the, the Trump campaign. Now, normally you would have to decide, you'd have to pick one. Uh, unless she's a dangerous Marxist radical cop. But in the kind of Facebook era of being able to sort of micro-target different messages to different voters, can you actually get away with multiple contradictory attacks? If I were to give advice to the Republican campaign, which I hope I wouldn't have to do, and I feel like, you know, something would have to go very wrong in my life for me to end up doing that. But, you know, but, but I would say that, you know, you probably do need to stick to one angle at the kind of, you know, national level. And then after that, you know, there can be absolute sort of like endless tweaks depending on who mm. you're trying to talk to, who you're trying to convince. But, yeah, no, at the moment, you know, you, you can't exactly paint someone, as you said, you know, as a Marxist cop. That that's quite It's quite a weird line of attack, really. It's very niche. I would like to, if there are any Marxist cops out there, uh, we would like to talk to them on the show. Um, Nina, Biden said some time back his running mate had to be a woman. Um, I think once the Black Lives Matter protest took off after the death of George Floyd, there was obvious sort of pressure then to choose a black woman. Do you think the usual concerns about electability, which is the euphemism for the fact that there are a lot of racists and sexists out there, are less relevant this year in this extremely unusual election? I think that there is definitely a political impetus to choose Kamala Harris as a candidate, not least because she is a mixed-race woman, um, she's young, but I actually think even if there is, you know, some kind of moment here going on the whole like Black Lives Matter protest and the global movement against racism, the more interesting thing about Kamala, in my view, is that she's actually the most qualified person for the post. I don't think that it is her skin color or indeed her gender that should be the most important thing as to why she was chosen, although I'm no under no illusions that might have played into the calculations for picking her. But I, I think she's a very qualified candidate. Well, I mean, what do you make of this Um this sort of slicing and dicing of her identity in the conversation that there was there was quite a lot of talk at least initially you know about exactly you know what her heritage is and is she african-american and what kind of black person she is this it seemed to be this kind of real microanalysis and obviously a lot of people have very you know complicated family backgrounds and they have these sort of unique parts did you find that sort of depressing this attempt to sort of break down and say what exactly is she it is depressing to the extent that it's wholly predictable. And obviously, this is not something new. It's something we saw uh, vigorously, you know, being promoted by the current president himself when it came to the candidacy of Barack Obama. Trump was one of the most vocal advocates and influencers around the whole birther conspiracy around Barack Obama. So 
it's not surprising that the same kind of accusations are being um, smeared against Kamala. The whole point being to delegitimize her candidacy, right? Mm. To say that she is not American, even though she is an American citizen born in America. And uh, if you follow that argument, you know, then then you're saying it's unconstitutional that she become VP. So from the very beginning, you're trying to delegitimize her candidacy and you're not fighting there on fair ground and it should be noted that this is the conspiracy theory that is being pushed um by people around trump and it's even been repeated repeated in um op-eds in well-known kind of publications so it's depressing but you know predictable because we've seen it all before and we're seeing it again ben it's my idea seeing that biden won't run in 2024 because he'll be too old so harris instantly the front runner there's a decent chance, uh, by no means guaranteed, but there's a decent chance we're looking at the next president but one. That's unusual. Uh, will that radically change, do you think, how she operates as as vice president? You know, if, if, if sort of every move is essentially kind of uh, auditioning for, for 2024? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it'll definitely change how she's treated as vice president. I mean, if you cast your mind back to 2012, Hillary Clinton was um, Secretary of State at that point, and she was the presumptive candidate for the Democratic Party in 2016. And, you know, the Republicans cooked up that ridiculous Benghazi conspiracy theory, which if I try to explain to you now, even though I read a lot about it, I wouldn't be able to explain it to you. But nonetheless, boy, oh boy, were there hearings on the House, and they managed to really kind of hack the narrative and damage Hillary Clinton. And, and it was brutal. And I think if Harris becomes vice president, they're going to try to tear her down. And, and I would imagine they'll try to apply racist tropes to her. They'll try to frame her as an angry black woman, which is what they did to Michelle Obama in 2008. And I still remember the New Yorker of all magazines had a front cover cartoon of Michelle Obama dressed in a kind of Taliban headdress carrying an AK-47. You know, and this is already happening with this kind of like new birtherism by the right-wing media. Facts won't matter. Uh, just they like that, you know, they didn't matter in the Benghazi conspiracy theory. And, and at the end of that, a Republican ghoul in the House, a congressman called Trey Gowdy, who had led this Benghazi attack on Clinton, openly admitted that the whole thing was cooked up to damage Clinton in 2016. It was all politics, he said. Well, finally, we've had a year possibly longer, of candidate selection. Uh, first the primaries, then the um, very long uh, process of selecting a running mate. So compared to UK party leaders, there's an extraordinary amount of scrutiny before you get the gig. Uh, I mean, people can't say that they don't know, they haven't had a chance to find out about Harris's um, life story and track record. Is there, from a British point of view, is there anything to envy there or is it is it is it too much of a good thing that you that you have like month after month after month of this i mean i don't think we should be too envious of the american primary system it did give us trump in 2016 i mean I think, you know the idea that there is the kind of gold standard scrutiny that can kind of ferret out the kind of cynics and narcissists and give us kind of abe lincoln is um i don't know if that was ever true it's definitely bullshit now I don't know, maybe scrutiny doesn't work anymore because our, our information ecosystems are broken. Um, but, um, I mean, God, it's tiring, isn't it? Watching kind of, you know, there's six months before Iowa in January and there's months after that. It just goes on and on and on. I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly envious of the US, the US system. 
Now it's time to find out where your energy should be going in a segment we call To the Barricades. Each week, one of the panel chooses a cause or a campaign that you might want to give your time, money, or if you are stuck. For both of those, enthusiastic Instagram likes to. Marie Leconte, you're our guest. Uh, what's your cause? Uh, well, I think, you know, obviously to come back to what we were talking about earlier, um, I think an issue uh, which should be, so, you know, rising to the barricades uh, for, is this new initiative called Journalists for Belarus. Uh, the website is www.journalistsforbelarus.com, uh, which is trying to help, um, you know, it, it does what it says on the tin, really. But I think, you know, clearly journalists uh, in Belarus at the moment are going through something terrible and kind of doing this brilliant thing. So the least we could do was try and help them do their job. Yes, so that's uh, journalistsforbelarus.com, where there's a donation link and an open letter uh, that journalists can sign. Finally, step aside, Tony Belia. Back in your box, David Camerong. Get into the dustbin of history, Zanu Libor. The political neologisms are back and they're still terrible. The very online right wing are trying to make Leftwaffe a thing, because nothing makes sense unless it's in the context of a war that ended 75 years ago. Among the apparent members of the left Rafa are Emily Maitlis, the BBC, teachers, people who complain about offensive comedy, The Guardian and Covid masks. Meanwhile, in the red corner, the wilder members of continuity Corbynism are lambasting avid supporters of popular donkey farmer Sir Keir Starmer as stormtroopers. Uh, ben, you are a messages guy. Why are people so drawn to these, um, these snappy portmanteaus, of which these are perhaps not two glowing examples? Well, you know, look, if you own language, you can often win. So I mean, this isn't a portmanteau, but when the infamous political communication strategist Frank Luntz was bought in by the Republicans to undermine the US inheritance tax, the first thing he did was rebrand it as the death tax. And it was really successful. And they tried it again with Obamacare by inventing the phrase death panels with, with less success, you know. But, you know, even Obamacare itself was a, was a successful neologism. You know, the word Brexit is a portmanteau. I actually always thought it was kind of rather beneficial to the leave side because it sort of conjures up a sense of adventurous patriotism. And an X in any word is kind of such a dynamic sound. Um, this podcast is named after a pretty successful portmanteau, Romaniacs, you know, Ramonas. They were, they were effective branding salvos against our side until, you know, you, Dorian, picked up the word Romaniacs with Andrew and owned it and wore, wore it with pride and, and sort of disarmed it. But um, you know, that's what these words are. They're political branding exercises designed to capture something negative about your opponent in a, in a simple, easy-to-remember phrase. And, you know, I always hated how our side called the opponents Brexiteers, you know, with those two E's, because it's sort of redolent of a swashbuckling, fearless sensibility, whereas in fact it was just Peter Bone boring for England at a meeting of the Bruges group. I, I think these portmanteaus need to have some truth to them if they're really going to carry. Um, and again, this isn't a portmanteau, but, but you know, a, a new political phrase. The most successful, I think, of recent years is one that's been deployed against us progressives, and that is the, the phrase virtue signaling. You know, if you can rebrand the articulation of progressive ideas as a cynical attempt to get you know, points of being woke, then you go some significant way to diminishing the power of the ideas you know, themselves. And you can hear the phrase virtue signaling used in pubs and homes across the country, not not just ones that, that take the spectator. So, you know, like, like any playground tour, you know, these things are more effective, I think, when they're funny uh, and, and, and more so when they're clever. And, you know, I have to say, I actually think Left and Stormtroopers are both pretty good. Um, I think where Stormtroopers falls down 
and why it won't catch on is because it's not really true, is it? I mean, you know, Star, Starmer's support just aren't culty, not compared to, you know, not compared to the Corbynistas. Well, I was, wanted to sort of, yeah, to sort of come to you with, about that, Marie. That we, yeah, we're saying about contradictory attacks on Kamala Harris. Um, Stormtroop is a very dramatic word to attach to politicians that the same people are trying to present as, as dull and inspiring and, and not, not energising people. So in this case, do they need to pick a lane? The the, the Starmer haters is is he is he very boring or is he a very scary commander of a violent militia? I know definitely. In uh, just to start with, because I know I was asked to come uh, come up with one sort of you know of those I really hated, and I'm going to cheat slightly because I think one that I found really irritating is the nickname for Keir, which is uh, Sir Haircut. Um, and which, and I, I can't really tell why I find it so irritating, but I think it's just because it's completely like it, it makes no sense. It's not really insulting that like he has a title and also quite neat hair. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's just yeah, got you. Um, but no, but I, I don't know. I, I think what I sort of find frustrating is that you know the Labour left um, has just spent uh, the past five years watching the Labour right basically making asses of themselves, just throwing everything they had at the wall against Corbyn. And then, um, you know, they became the ones uh, out of power and decided to do exactly the same thing to Keir Starmer. And it's that, but you watched the other guys do that for five years and you didn't learn anything from that. Um, but also, yeah, and I think, you know, more widely, it is quite funny because, um, you know, Keir Starmer is a boring man. And I think, you know, to some people... Uh, that's a good thing after the Corbyn years, and also kind of I think you know as opposed to obviously Boris Johnson, but 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 you know as a result like he's just not an exciting person. So I think the level of hysteria quite often on social media whenever a kid does something just looks a bit insane because it's like he's not he's not an exciting man. How can you be that worked up? Again, it would probably make more sense to me to have as a line of attack. Actually, he's too dull or he's too bland or whatever. Because anything else, it's like well. Listen to him. You're you're the one sounding batshit here. So, Marie, does French political culture have a similar love of puns and portmanteau? Uh, no, I think puns are a very very British thing, um, and portmanteaus. But also, but I think it's, it's. I mean, it's partly because I think our political culture is slightly different, and perhaps you know, sort of like a bit more serious. I like to think that if there's a spectrum of kind of Britain on the one hand, and then uh, Germany on the other, we're kind of somewhere in the middle with France. Um, but it's also, I think, just that um, the press is different. So I think, you know, all those portmanteaus and puns usually come from the tabloid press. Um, and we don't really have tabloids in France. You know, our most writing about politics in France is actually quite dry, is actually you know, the, the way broadsheets uh, would write it. Mm. Well, Nina, the German language thrives on... Uh on sort of neologisms uh that always seem to be new and increasingly long words emerging from the german language um does that mean that it also inspires uh inventive political abuse it absolutely does i mean just as a starting point i think philologists look at germany the german language and wonder you know with the amount of new words that are being introduced um every year I think there's something like 500,000 words in the German language now, but there are so many political insults as well. I mean, one of my favorite ones is the Wutbürger. Uh, that means the anger citizen. And it was kind of started around 2010 after all the kind of Eurozone bailouts and all the uncertainty around um, the Eurozone that this the Wutbürger came to symbolize the citizen who felt that political decisions were not being made by the citizens. So it feels like we have some Wutbürgers here in the UK as well. 
Because even even the ones, I think the words that are funny at first become become tedious uh, very quickly, apart from Romaniacs, which is evergreen and a delightful name for a podcast. Um, you know, the, one, of the, one of the arguments about political cliches uh, is that they're a good way of signaling that, that here's someone you should ignore, that when you see one of those kind of pre-cooked phrases in a piece of political writing or even a tweet, you just go, oh, right, okay, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be getting any fresh thought here. Do you think that these phrases can be uh, can be a turnoff? They can be a turnoff, but more than that, they can actually be counterproductive. I mean, I know that sometimes they're amusing. We all kind of use them. But if you look at political discourse, the use of these kind of words can actually be uh, really destructive to having a conducive conversation or at least a conducive political debate. You see this kind of content not only in words which initially seem funny in a way to kind of um, tease your detractors but also increasingly in things in content like memes which seem innocent and you know are disseminated without kind of um, necessarily bad intent but they often come to corrode our political discourse so I think that you should be careful when you think about how you bandy the words around because there is a real political consequence once these ideas hmm. entrench themselves into society and popular culture. Well, finally, Marie gave us hers, her haircut. Um, I'm interested to hear what other ones, political insults that you love or hate. I already mentioned one that I quite liked, I quite miss. It was in the mid-90s and it's sort of forgotten now, was Tony Blur, because he was meant to, because uh, he, he was triangulating and, you, and you, he couldn't. You couldn't see him clearly, which allowed my university paper to run the caption, Tony Blur, There's No Other Way, which is uh, much like uh, the early phase of Tony Blair's leadership has not dated well. Nina, what about you? Uh, One that that particularly bugs you? So I'm going to say one that's just recently come out, given kind of the environment um, that we're in this year. And it's, it's, it's Karen. And it is kind of, you know, used to denote women who are the the policemen of the world. And the connotation with Karen is always, you know, that it is a white woman and a white woman who is somehow prejudicing um, an ethnic or racial minority. Helen Lewis has written a very good piece in The Atlantic today about why she finds this word and the use of this word and its dissemination in popular culture so uh, pernicious. And I thought that it's a great article. I really recommend it. And I would say, you know, a lot of people have been using that term um, because they, they think it's quite funny. But I actually think, I agree with Helen that I actually think it's quite per- pernicious. Uh, so, Ben, can you give me one that you, you, you actually gave a few that you loved earlier. You were very positive, even about left wafer. So is there one that really turns you off? I, there's two that I really hate, actually. And one of them is feminazi, which is, I mean, just it sounds... It's like kind of fingers going down a chalkboard and says so much about the person that has said that word. But there's another one, actually, the acronym SJW, standing for Social Justice Warrior, that's used a lot on social media. And for me, you might as well have tattooed on your forehead that my brain has been pickled by the YouTube algorithm. Um, And whenever I see that, I make an immediate and very damning judgment on the person that has just articulated it. And that's the end of this week's Romaniacs. Thanks to our special guest, Marie Lecomte. Oh, thank you. To Nina Schick. Thank you. And to Ben Stewart. It's a total pleasure, Dorian. And special thanks to Olga Zevileva for connecting us with Olya Vabilovich. 
Don't forget our next Zoom on Thursday, 24th of September. Now here's Quarter Shop with our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Roger Byrne, Stephen Bradley, Nina Woods, and Faith Agarba. And a big thank you from me to Jess, Catherine Edgeworth, Tom Beeks, and Andrew Christie. And many thanks to Gwen Davis-Schneider, Tim Wood, Neville Atkins, and Guy Jackson. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky, Nina Schick, Ben Stewart, Marie Lacon, and Oliver Bilovich. Produced by Andrew Harrison. Assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, with audio production by me, Robin Lever. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.